This is On The Grid, powered by theracetalk.com on mypodcasthouse.com. G'day everyone and welcome to another episode of On The Grid here on mypodcasthouse.com or on the radio show Limited's RS1. Thank you so much for joining us. Massive show coming your way tonight. We're going to go through another top five and this is a really, really good top five. Looking forward to this one a little bit later on with Dale Rogers and Mark Walker joining myself and Richard Crail who will also be talking to Scott Pye in just a tick about the upcoming E-Series for supercars here in Australia. All that to come right here on The Grid. This is On The Grid on mypodcasthouse.com. All right, time to say good day to Richard Crail for the first time tonight. Hello, Crailsy. Chebexter, how are you? Excellent. Thank you, mate. TheRacetalk.com uh, doing some fantastic numbers on the weekend as well through the uh, Le Mans 24 week. Can you see it? Story? Yeah, yeah. Turns out if you don't broadcast Le Mans in Australia, people go Googling on where to find it. We were the only ones that ran a story about where you could find it. So people came to us, which was tremendous. But no, very happy with the output the last couple of weeks, Shebex, despite the fact there being no racing to talk about here. Lots of cool stories. So jump on to uh, TRT. We'll plug later in the show. Well, like last year as well, racing was interrupted halfway through the year and supercars came up with the idea of sending the supercar drivers out for an E-Series. They've done it again in 2021 with the Cash Converters Supercars Pro E-Series and driving the DeWalt car will be Scotty Pye in 2021. He joins us now. Hello, Scott. How are you? Good, lads. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thank you for coming on board, mate. Uh, back to the simulator and back to the screens and all that sort of stuff. Uh, you excited about the upcoming E-Series? I am. I, I actually really enjoyed it last year. I certainly embraced it. I jumped straight into streaming everything online and, um, and yeah, I gave, gave everything my best shot. I'm not, I'm not a gamer. I'm not someone who spent uh, a lot of years on the sim. So it was definitely a, a rude awakening. I remember the first race and I was uh, in, definitely down the back of the pack. But it was, it was fun. And, and by the end, you know, we all got so competitive. It was crazy, the, uh, the level of competition within um, – I mean, we're, we're all – competitive athletes so it's like none of us want to suck at something so we all took it pretty serious and we even those that said at the beginning they were going to just have some fun and you know the likes of david reynolds and you know those guys particularly made such big improvements from the the start of that championship to the end of it um and you know we all entered there with the mentality of oh, it's just a game we're gonna have some fun and then you know what we're like when you put a steering wheel and pedals in front of us we're all trying to prove we're better than the other guy uh, you, like you said, really embraced it and you did the Twitch streaming thing and that got a life of its own, didn't it? It, it generated its own little fan base. You had some of your mates jump on, notable racing car drivers as well. Um, are you bringing that back? And, and just as you reflect on that element of the E-Series last year, it was such a completely unexpected thing that came out of that, yeah. that whole package, wasn't it? It was, and that's what made it so enjoyable for me. It wasn't that... Um, you know, I like just being able to drive something again or, or anything like that. The, the point of the whole thing was, I mean, no sport could be played last year. It was a massive shock to everyone. But, um, and that for, for all of us is our escape. You know, we like, mm. I think sport, this is why I think sometimes when, when athletes get political, it upsets some fans because they want to switch off from the real world and go and watch some sport and enjoy themselves and not have to worry about some real world problems. And that's what E-Series did last year. We gave everyone a good reason to smile again, have a laugh, and that's what Twitch did as well. I couldn't believe how quickly a community grew and, uh, and people were, I mean, in the, the um, chat was just so friendly and everyone was there for the same reason. We're just looking for something to smile about, have some fun. Um, I was pretty strict on the rules. I made sure that I, don't, I, I didn't care who your favourite driver was. I didn't want to hear you bag anyone out. It was all about having some fun. Um, and everyone on my Twitch certainly embraced that. I mean, I never had any issues, so which was awesome. And um, yeah, and, and it kind of got out of hand. I was streaming like 12 hours some days, <laughs> uh, sometimes till three o'clock in the morning. We had um, Lando join, mm. Alex Albon would come on. And, and um, of course, you know, my mates here in Australia as well, and in New Zealand, we were on pretty regularly. Stevie J was a regular on there as well. Yep. Um, but yeah, many, many a stream where I didn't really remember much of the end of it, but um, it was always a good laugh. And really that's what it was about. So I've jumped straight back in. I'm pumped to be back on, on and streaming everything. Now you did right, though, from a fan's point of view, some of that Twitch stuff that was happening with yourself and Scotty McLaughlin and all that sort of stuff was just better to watch than actually just watching the live stream because it added just an extra dimension to it. Yeah. Gee, you got some uh, great tracks coming up in uh, this calendar for the uh, the E-Series, Charlotte, Pocono, Daytona, Michigan, 
uh, an endurance race at Mount Panorama and you'll finish off at Bristol. Yes, I really like Charlotte, actually. It's a short short track with quite a tight um, turn one. So, like, on your own, the cars generally on the ovals are pretty nervous in the rear. But once you throw us in a pack, you lose the the front grip a little bit, unless you're qualified on pole, but then all you're doing anyway is punching a hole for the entire field. So the cars are still tricky. It's not like we're just flat and driving them around an oval. There's still strategy in it. Track position super important. You don't really want to be leading until the, uh, the last lap when you cross that line. But... Um, I've just spun my first laps of Charlotte again today. We did it last year. Um, and, yeah, it's, it's cool. I, I enjoy the ovals. If you drive around your own, of course, it's not going to be as much fun as a, a circuit. But uh, you throw us in a pack with 25 of us or whatever and there's no field spread. Um, the chaos is, uh, is pretty much second to none. It was one of the great things about last year's E-Series I found. And I, I've been an oval fan long time back, starting with IndyCar, but love NASCAR as well. Mm. Um I think everyone who has a passing interest in US racing has gone, what would a supercar race be like on an oval? And we've never been able to answer it because the Thunderdome's in a state of disrepair, which is a massive shame. And there's no other tracks here. And you're not going to go to the States to run a supercar there. You'll run at Coda or somewhere else. But I think that's what the E-Series almost completely answered that question of, would it be good? And the answer was, yep. Yeah, it would. Because it was... It was spectacular. And we all know iRacing is a very, very good simulation more than a game. So it sort of gave a bit of an insight, I think, into what racing a supercar on and over would be like. So we need to petition to get the Thunderdome back up and running, Scotty, I reckon, because that would be a hell of a show. It might need some work. Last time I went out there, I think a road car or a four-wheel drive would struggle to do a lap. Um, It was that, But of course, I mean, I would love to. And that's that's the cool thing with online racing. We, we've all wondered what it would be like to drive a supercar around places like Spa as well. Mm. We were able to do that last year. Um, and you go to an oval and, and um, you know, I've never raced on an oval before. So I was pretty excited about the opportunity to do it. And still for us, we're racing the same people we race every day of the week. So it was actually kind of cool to have the same field. We knew that you're racing against other professionals because it is different to just jumping in an online race and, and competing against people that we don't personally know or, or um, people that just do it for fun to actually be thrown in there with all of our supercar drivers and go and race each other on an oval was, was really cool. So uh, I wouldn't want to do it if the crashes were as big as what we had. On no, racing, no. For sure. um, I think I got stuck in orbit one time, but it, um, yeah, it was cool. And I think that's why we're doing the ovals this time as well, because I think they are probably the most exciting races. Yeah. And this year we see uh, a split in the uh, in the groups. We've got the Pro Series and the All Star E Series. Uh, Mark Winterbottom not driving for you this season in his car, but his car will be taken over by one of the pro drivers. Yeah, we've got uh, young Cooper Webster. He's jumping in Frosty's in the Irwin car, so he'll be taking the reins of that. Um, and uh, yeah, I think it's interesting how they're doing the split. We're going to be on the same night, so there will be the All Stars um, and then the the gamers, the pro gamers. So. Luckily, they're not mixing us because I know for sure I would get get wiped. Um, <laughs> so that's I'm happy about that. I'm not complaining there. Um, but yeah, I'm actually interested to see those guys as well, and hopefully Cooper can can get the Erlen car up the front. Um, yep, yeah, be good. So the only time you will be together is in that round five oh, sorry, when yes. you're both at Mount Panorama. So will you be co-drivers to each other, or will you have your own car? Uh, I don't actually know for sure on that one. That's the only one I believe we're sharing a car. Okay. Um, and I think I'll go, I think we go until around the halfway point. Um, I'm not sure how free, how much freedom we'll have in strategy as to when we can pit. Um, to be honest, if, if there wasn't a driver maximum, I'll probably pit on the end of the first lap and, <laughs> take over and then hopefully yeah. we win the day. Um, but I think they are going to put a minimum in there so that us drivers, because we know that the pro gamers are going to be so fast. Um, and Bathurst is tough. Like I need to start practicing there again, really, because that track on the sim was that's where I got this nickname last year, the outlap King. Um, yep. It was because I kept crashing on the outlap. I couldn't <laughs> even start the flyer. And, and that started at Bathurst. That track is so difficult in real life, but it's 10 times more difficult in, in the game. Yeah. The mountain always challenges. Hey, uh, we, we should talk about the real world stuff, Scotty. Um, challenging season. I think it's fair to say so far for, yeah. for team 18 and the DeWalt squad, but uh, let's go with positive first. First, you're 13th in the championship, 934 points. You're less than 70 points out of the top 10. So that sort of fifth down to 15th is so unbelievably tight. You're still in the game going into whatever the second half of the season looks like. Yeah. I mean, the the, the, the bitter pill to swallow is the fact that we haven't capitalised on some of the results we could have got very easily in the last few races. You know, we've had um, some suspension failures where the, the wheel nut wouldn't come off in Darwin. 
Um, just a bunch of little problems like that where we had some big chunks of points just, just disappear on us. So I think that for me is the frustrating part of the season. It hasn't been that we've been slow. It's just that we've just had some bad luck. Um, so yeah, it's close. I'm disappointed because I think we should already be in the top 10, but it's motorsport. There's definitely, it's, it's hard. You can't say we should be there because if you're not, you're just not there. So we need to uh, make the best of what we can in the last part of this year. Um, I, of course, made a big mistake in Darwin. And I know that there's other contributing factors to the crash that happened there. But for me, but my approach has always been to try and take ownership and learn from it. I know that I could have, I could have made a better decision there. Um, and yeah, at the back end of the year, I need to uh, improve on, on all of those little things and make sure that when I do get a car, I'm in third or even better, then we, we make the most of it. I, I come home with those points that day. And that, if I can do that, we can, um, we can certainly get back up well into the top 10 of the championship. And that is my goal. Um, and of course, we all say if your championship hasn't gone to plan, there's still Bathurst. So uh, yeah, my, my heart is solely is set on that big time. Well, we hope there's still Bathurst and in what form, though, it sort of uh, is still to be seen. Your thoughts on the remainder of the season? Have you got any idea of how it may play out? Uh, the year itself, I'm sure, will finish in December. That's about all I know. Um, as to when the championship ends, I don't know. And even the events, um, yeah, I, I tend not to interfere or anything like that or put too much pressure on, on getting answers from the category. I know that there's lots happening behind the scenes to ensure that we can go racing, complete this championship. And, um, yeah, hopefully we can do that safely. If we can do it with a crowd as well, it would be amazing. I, I'm not sure where we'll be able to do that. But that, of course, with the category as well is really important. And that may dictate where our final events are. Um, but for me, obviously, I want to go racing. We've got to make sure we can do it right um, to begin with. Bathurst is, like, for my focus, that's that's definitely a big event we need to make happen. And, and as a driver, like I said, with the championship, it hasn't gone to plan. I've, I'll be bloody disappointed if I don't get a crack at Bathurst this year. And especially with the crew and, and like having Golding in the car, I think we've got a great opportunity to do well. But yeah, that is, that is, I guess, as far as my thoughts can really go, because there's so many unknowns at the moment. Um, it's not in anyone's control, but for sure, we've got a quick car and, and I'm just keen to get back racing and try and get some, some results under our belt. Yeah, you're right about Bathurst. I'd, um, having called, Bieber in action throughout S5000 this year. He's in good touch. So mm. that's a that's a good little combination. Um, Shebex was talking off air before we we started the interview, Scotty, about your project car. And we thought it might be a cool idea to have a, a chat about that. Can you just bring us up to speed with this, this concept of you firstly restoring a car, but mm. how it's happening, where it's happening? Because that's an interesting little yeah. link as well. Yeah, it is. So um, first of all, I'm restoring a uh, 56, 1956 at Ford F100. Um, I first fell in love with sort of this era of car when I saw Charlie's C10 in Queensland last year. And um, I wanted to restore something for a while. And I chose the Ford because my dad was a Ford nut. Um, and I think he would he would uh, kill me if I went the Chev, even though I really like the look of the Chev. So I've chosen the 56 and uh, we're restoring that. I got that um, end of last year or beginning of this year. And it's at Erebus Garage. So really cool thing they're doing. They run it beside the race team, but it's a totally, it's in a separate shop. So I'm able to go in there and, and watch the build and, you know, kind of be a part of that without ever even seeing the bonnet of a supercar, which is awesome. So for me, I'm just a customer of Erebus Garage. And uh, they, for me, I, I mean, they are doing an amazing job. Their fabricator, James White, is an absolute guru. And he's the guy who, you know, he's building all the Gen 3 stuff. And so for him to be building my truck, it kind of gives me, um, full confidence that's being done like at an absolute premium. I know how good these guys in supercars are. So yeah, I'm able to add some flair to it. We've got some supercar um, little touches that will go, like we're changing the side skirt, putting supercar side pipes on it. Uh, it's going to have a Coyote engine in it. We've got some amazing partners as well through connections of my own and also through uh, Erebus Garage that have come on board. We've got, um, yeah, all new suspension through Pedders coming. It'll drive like a new one. That's what I want, but I still yep. want it to look like a 56 um, truck so wow. yeah, I, I'm really enjoying it I'd love to say I'm more involved in the resto but it's probably a good thing that I'm not um, my <laughs> hands aren't getting dirty and yeah I'll, I'll drive it if I, if I was building it I probably wouldn't drive it after but yeah those guys are doing that and I just go in with my wish list and see what um, is actually <laughs> what is, is achievable mate you mentioned uh, you like the look of the the Chevy uh, I tell you what there's one Chevy that I love the look of and it's the Chevy Camaro Gen 3 car that yeah. was released by your media team, yourself and Frosty's car a few weeks ago. That is a hot looking machine, that DeWalt number 20. 
It is, mate. And I, well, the Dewalt car—that's pretty hard to make that livery look bad on anything. I reckon. Yeah, like, true. Tough looking mm. car. Black um, and yellow goes well on most <laughs> things. <laughs> well, it depends which team you follow. Yeah. My manager follows Richmond, so yeah, he would totally agree with you there. So does Shabeki. Yeah, <laughs> I could have guessed. Um, so yeah, it does. It looks amazing, mate. And the cars do look cool. I think the you know from what we've seen so far, the aero coming off of them and everything. The, the main thing is that the racing is exciting. So. Um, I, I hope that they're getting that, um, you know, regardless of this uh, Holden versus Ford, you know, we obviously have a heap of people that are um, criticising the lack of uh, manufacturers that are relevant, I guess, on the road for us. But I think number one for a fan is you know, we need to focus on on the racing and make sure that that's exciting to watch. Um, and that's what was a category I reckon they're, they're on they're on target to, to achieve. So, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to driving the cars. Um and uh, yeah, hopefully the racing's close. I think this year the cars have certainly evolved a lot over the last four or five years, and we're at risk at the moment of having a little bit too much downforce and not being able to follow. But what we're looking for in the future is something that I think will be really exciting, regardless of shifters and paddles and everything else. Um, as long as the racing's exciting, that's number one. Yeah, exactly, mate. All the best in the E Series. Uh, as you said, you took it really seriously last year while having a lot of fun. Hopefully that remains. The same in 2021, and hopefully we get to see you in Winton at the uh, start of October in real life. If not, maybe Phillip Island. If not, possibly the Bend. <laughs> Who knows? Well, no matter what, hopefully somewhere. That's, exactly. Uh, yeah, I look forward to catching up, and thanks for having me on. Appreciate Good on you, mate. Scotty Pye joining us here on The Grid. All right, a couple of great interviews so far. Now for a great chat. It's another one of our top fives coming your way. Richard Crail, of course, joins me. Mark Walker, good day to you. Baxter, Richard Crail, top fives. Boy, these are hard work. Ah, actually, yeah, this <laughs> one was especially hard. Dale Rogers, good day to you. Hello, Tony and Richard. I'm not going to say hello to you, Mark, because you never say hello to me when I'm <laughs> I don't know what the etiquette here is. Hi, Dale. I'll just blank you out. How are you? <laughs> You're on, you're on mute. Now we should. You, you're setting us up for a false Bex because you say a good chat coming up. It could go either way. Well, um, and we'll preface this by saying that this particular top five was definitely Dale's idea. So if it doesn't yes. work out, uh, what's your Twitter address, Dale? At Beckdale twenty seven. At D Rogers Dale Rogers twenty seven. Twenty seven. Yep. Yeah. But you bugger and it'll be fine. Yep. Love it. No, it'll work out fine, I'm sure, even though we've only had 24 hours to actually work on it. And some of the, the rules and stipulations around it, especially you had to put it in order yeah, from your, your fifth best to your first best. Was we've, always, we've always done that, though. So yeah, we should yeah. introduce the topic. The topic is our top five motor racing heroes. Yes. So how you define hero was entirely up to the individual. Uh, could have had an influence as a youngster. It could be a current hero. Doesn't matter. Top five motor racing heroes. So as per the course with these top five chats on the grid, we will go from fifth through fourth. We'll go around the horn as we all run through. And um, I was going to say justify our reasons. I don't think we need to justify our, our heroes because you don't need to justify a hero. That's the whole point of them being a hero. Um, but we'll justify our answers anyway. All right, who's going first? I'll, I'll come up with it, so I'll... Yep. I'll All right, yep, you, yeah, let it off. Um, I'm, there's obviously, there's a myriad of drivers that you could put in this that didn't quite make the list, but I've got five rather strange ones, not surprisingly. The first one is a, 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 a driver who uh, not only was, there was they were going to throw out of the category he raced in, uh, he also had to face manslaughter charges three years after a massive accident in the late 70s. And ended up becoming one of the most uh, popular and, uh, um, you know, longest standing drivers in Formula One. That's Ricardo Petrazzi. I actually think he's, um, if you look back at his, at his career, he, he won everything in junior formula. He was blamed by James Hunt uh, for a number of things, but also causing an accident that led to the death of Ronnie Peterson at Monza in, in uh, 1978. And then had to face manslaughter charges with the race director in 81, some three years later. He, took, he got taken on the win by Bernie Eccleston, drove for Brabham twice, uh, but finally made it at Williams. And the guys at Williams absolutely adored him. 
uh, as, as of Nigel Mansell. In, in, the, in the early cars before the 14B came, which was probably knew his gun car that, that Mansell just loved, um, Patrese took it up to Mansell regularly and uh, he had five years with, with Williams, um, a second and two thirds in the championship. But it's summed up, I think, beautifully by Frank Williams. It said, at Williams, we won't hear a word against, said against Ricardo. This guy's an absolute gentleman and he's welcome here anytime. So for me, yeah, a, a really a great ambassador for Formula One and motorsport. Okay, Patrese, nice start. I thought we were going to get a lot of crossover, but maybe we won't. No, that I did. If you had asked me to list the 20 drivers that will get listed tonight, Ricardo Patrese would not have been on my list. No. Uh, a driver that is on my list, and I've cheated blatantly here um, because my number five is actually two because I've grouped them by series. Um, so deal with it. Um, my number five drivers, and I literally could not split these two, are Mario Andretti and Alex Zanardi, and they are responsible for my love of IndyCar racing, which goes way back. Um, Mario Andretti, I reckon, is probably the greatest all-round racing car driver that's ever existed. Um, he's won IndyCar, Formula One, NASCAR, sports car racing, hugely diverse, um, wonderful story and listen to the Dinner with Races podcast with him because it it gives you the full tale of, of his background coming from Italy and uh, everything he went through to forge a career and ultimately ending up at Nazareth, Pennsylvania and um, becoming part of that state and then forging his uh, career in USAC and up through the ranks of IndyCar racing and everything that's flowed on from there. And of course, his feats in Formula One have been well documented. There is no point in me elaborating on those. Um, but I just think at 81 years of age, he remains one of the absolute greats of world motorsport and and he is universally respected on every side of every ocean which i think is a sign of just how impressive his career is so mario and zanardi i mean the story sells itself um battled in formula one but my god in a target chip ganassi indycar he redefined what was capable there basically invented the donut as a form of motor racing celebration the pass says it all but i more, I became more of a Zanardi fan after his crash at the Lautzitz ring um, and the comeback when he completed those 13 laps in the hand control Reynard IndyCar back at Lautzitz a couple of years later, just after September 11. Um, that was one of the more moving bits of motor racing you'd ever watch to, to tick that box. And then, of course, he went on to win races in other categories in touring car racing and sports cars. Um, with no legs and now he's going through it all again after his bike crash trying to recover from that so uh, I think Zanardi's one of the all-time greats I couldn't split them I make no apologies for that fact but that's my uh, joint number five. Richard just on, on Andretti that uh, Joan Paolo Dallara who we interviewed last week also yep. said that of all the drivers and he'd never raced a Dallara for under his tutorage he was his favorite as well so yeah mm. He, he actually pulled up next to me at a urinal on the Gold Coast once. Mario? No, no, um, Zanardi. Zanardi, yeah. And I, he actually did his last IndyCar donut right in front of me there in, 2000, yeah. in 1998. So, yeah. Yeah. I want to hear more about the urinal. Uh, <laughs> nothing really to say. It was uh, quite quite bizarre. But yeah, anyway, that happened. Um, I'll, I'll go next. Hmm. Um, I like an underdog, I guess, and I like Queensland underdogs and – I doubt any of you guys are going to have this, but uh, Cameron McLean, number five. Great. Completely left field. You know, he might not have ever won a lot of big races, but, uh, man, he sort of came on my radar back when he used to have the BMW M3, the old Tony Longhess car in sports sedans, and he had this little stock-looking BMW. He'd go out there and smoke all these big, dirty, great V8s, and he actually won the sports sedan championship there in 1995. But it's those giant killing sort of performances sort of, you know, put him on the radar. It was always punched above his weight and super touring, you know, had a couple of BMWs and the Vectra. He was always a good thing at Bathurst. You know, he had a, a couple of fourth places. Uh, I mean, I remember the fourth in 98 in his own car and the Greenfield Mowers car uh, against, you know, the world's best. And him and Tony Scott finished fourth, which was Really, really cool. Stepped up to V8s and was always one of the gun privateers. And I still love that uh, O2 AU, the black and yellow uh, VIP pet foods car. I was there at the launch at Sanctuary Cove when they dropped that one. Um, 
I suppose a couple other things on the side was one time I was talking to him in the pits at Lakeside and it transpired. He actually grew up over my back fence. He was literally <laughs> grew up. <laughs> we were neighbors. I had no idea. But anyway, and then when I had my first job, I'd sometimes uh, at the car dealership get stuck on the parts delivery run. And I was always stoked whenever I got McLean Motors up there at Everton Hills and get to drop in and see Cam McLean. So, uh, yeah, bit of left field action there, but Cam McLean, my number five. I like that. The, the, the giant killing performances in Super Touring when mm. he was the privateer up against some of the works teams were really impressive. And same in the Greenfield Mowers EL Falcon mm. as well in, in touring car racing. Yep. The year that he had John Cleland running with him up there, uh, I was there that year, and, and uh, they just had the best time. You know, they almost yep. won the bloody thing, had, had the thing fallen their way. But And, of course, having Cleland in your garage was just a guaranteed <laughs> recipe for fun and frivolity the whole weekend. So my first uh, hero and my first memory of a driving hero was pretty much Alan Jones, watching my highlights of Formula One Grand Prix back in the early 80s. Probably must have been actually 1980, a great year. Richmond won the flag. Alan Jones won the World Championship. And Australia won the Benjamin Hedges World Series, beating New Zealand India in the Tri-Series. It was a good year. Yes. Uh, to have an Aussie win the F1 championship was amazing. And I had to follow this guy and in turn ended up following Formula One. It was sort of my start into Formula One. I remember watching highlights of races after a mate from school pointed me in that direction. I had to follow the Aussie. And, and how good was it too? In 81, Wide World of Sports and Nine started showing extended highlights on our screen and I was hooked. So imagine how I felt when I got to watch Alan Jones live in 1985 when Channel 9 covered the entire F1 race from Adelaide. It was the first time we'd really seen an entire Formula 1 race live, especially on our screens. It was Jones's 100th F1 race. Unfortunately, he didn't finish, but it's the race that really got me into F1. And that race and he, the rest of his career, I sort of felt a little bit let down, need to find another hero. So I did, and I'll talk about him in position number two. Number four. Um, one of the best supercar drivers in history, Marcus Ambrose. An uh, absolute cracker of a bloke, a really, really racist racer. I first got involved with him in his Formula Ford days in the 1990s. And uh, I had a funny story about him. In, in, I, I caught up with him. Uh, we had a policy at the company I used to, used to own and run at Revolution Race Gear. We would support all Australians who went overseas. That was just a company policy, one of the few companies in Australia that did it. And uh, I, I ran into at, at Croft. He was running a Ray Formula Ford, which was an absolute dog of a car against the Van Diemen's. Um, it, it, down in the paddock area, there was a young bloke with a black Formula Ford with a Super Roo sticker on the front of it, dancing around on a skateboard and uh, chatting up the chicks. That was James Courtney. And next to the garage, there was a, a, a rather sad-looking Ray with some packing crates at the back of it. Um, and I said to one of the mechanics, is Marcus here? He goes, oh, he just pointed to the back of the garage. At the back of the garage, on sitting on a, on a on packing crate with his computer on another packing crate was Marcus engineering his own car. Um, it was extraordinary. And on the races at Croft that weekend, and Croft's a cracker of a circuit for Formula Ford, um, he, he took it up to the, the factory Van Diemen's. I think he finished on the podium. If not, he was in the top four or five all weekend. Absolute cracking racing. And, of course, then back to Australia, uh, just dominated supercars uh, with, with that golden era with Stone Brothers. Then to the US, I had a bit to do over there as well. Mark Walker picked, probably picks that story up even better than I. But when he came back, I was assigned to him uh, in 2014 with the, with the restructured DJR, which I was working for, and I was Marcus's minder. And a lot of people don't really know what happened behind the scenes in 2014 and 15. Uh, at 14, I caught up with him again at Lakeside at the test. And then at 15, of course, we had the, the year that he pulled the pin after two rounds. Marcus attended every race meeting that year. He attended every sponsor function. He attended every signing session. He attended everything he had to do on a normal race weekend except drive the car. Uh, he never complained. Uh, I flew with him regularly if he was coming through Melbourne. It was just a normal race weekend. In fact, he wasn't driving. He did an enormous job for that team. And a lot of people realised, had it not been for the triangle of Penske, Johnson and Marcus Ambrose, that team would not have happened. Mark, he was a key pillar in that triangle to make it happen. He's a great bloke. I'm still great mates with him. And uh, I just think he is one of the real treasures of, of our sport and one of the hardest-ass races I've ever met in my life. Mm, well said. Yeah. Well said. I like it. Uh, my number four, uh, 
comes from my background growing up in Adelaide and having the Australian Grand Prix in my backyard. Uh, hugely significant thing to grow up with as a as a guy, a kid who liked car racing, to have the very best of the world in your backyard. And, and it's influenced the careers of many of our contemporaries working in the media nowadays. I mean, it takes more than one hand to count the number of people that came out of that system that were influenced by that event and later the Adelaide 500. Um, but of all the great Formula One drivers, including Ayrton Senna, that raced in Adelaide, my favourite was always Nigel Mansell. Mm. Um, outside of the Adelaide Grand Prix, he would be the driver that I would get up to watch a 2am Canadian Grand Prix for before we had the Aussie influence. Um, he would be the one you'd stay up all hours for. He'd be the one you'd read the stories about, buy the autobiographies as a kid. Um, the, the story of Mansell is well told. It's fantastic. It, it's got all the great things you need in a, a legendary figure in the sport, the crashes, the injuries, the struggles with money early on, the heartbreak of losing a world championship in the final race, like in Adelaide. Um, and then finally, the arguments of which I'm sure there were many, the complaining and the whinging of which there was a lot. Um, and then ultimately the, the peak performance of going and winning the world championship. But then carrying that on and going and having success in IndyCar racing as well, just put the full stop on that. Um, I, I remember I read as a kid, there was a story in wheels magazine and I think, and apologies if it wasn't, but I think it was by the great Michael Stahl who talked to Patrick head, uh, a bit of a story about Williams. And he recounted a tale of Mansell driving one of the turbocharged Williams Hondas at the Canadian Grand Prix. And the team were at him for laps and laps and laps to turn the boost down. He was out in front, turn the boost down, Nigel, and he ignored them completely, wouldn't do it. And um, finally, he um, he bowed down and, and he turned the boost down and he went one second a lap slower for one lap on significantly lower boost and then went back to doing exactly the same lap times as he did before. And the only radio communication throughout the whole process was after he went back to doing the lap times on the back straight, he apparently cracked the radio on and started singing quite randomly, I feel, today's the day the teddy bears have their picnic. But that just strikes me as so Nigel. Um, very odd sense of humour, but an arty hero who would drive the wheels off a not particularly good car and get it in positions where it shouldn't be. And then when he had a really good car, he'd make the most of it. So massive Mansell fan to this day. He's one of the few people in the world that I'm frustrated that I haven't been able to meet yet. So he's on the list. So number four for me. Il Leone, as the Italians called him, Nigel Mansell. Yeah, beauty. I remember watching him on the Gold Coast 93 and 94, and it was silky smooth. Mm. And then you'd have Robbie Gordon come through and have 18 hacks at the steering wheel to try and get around the corner. It was, uh, it was pretty interesting stuff. Um, love that. Um, I, I suppose I should have said at the top, I don't have any honourable mentions, and I've left out all the clients. It's a bit like trying to pick a yeah. favourite child uh, or a favourite podcast host. Uh, I mean, it's Tony, but yeah, anyway, yeah, yeah. Like, shouldn't, shouldn't say it. Yeah. Um, we could do but, that next okay. week if you want. <laughs> <laughs> Top four. <laughs> Top one. We were, the, the irony of that is if we rank best podcast, we, I don't know if we'd come out on top. No, no. <laughs> anyway. uh, my number four, uh, it's easy to like winners and um, – this bloke's won over 250 races, uh, John Bow. Mm. Um, I mean, he obviously loses points for running over Dale. I mean, that's... <laughs> and Scotty that's, Wensley. Oh, there you go. Mm. No, good. But uh, JB, I mean, I, I've sort of crossed paths with him a lot. And, you know, Rich, you have a lot more than myself, but uh, over the past 13, 14 years, whatever it's been, and uh, mm. he's a legend. What, what can you say about him? He's... Is easy to follow because he's probably going to win the bloody race. So, yep. uh, of course, it's easy to follow him. Um, one of my favorite ones was Sandown 2008. I was doing a lot of the data logging for the production car field back then. And Chris Dalsma had the GT Falcon, would often get um, Bowie in as a co driver for the, the way the races were formatted back then. And so, dude, you've got to get some data logging here so we can you know, tune you up a bit. It's no point just having JB in the car and, 
and having his name on the side of the door. Put some data logging in, we'll we'll sort you out. And to his credit, he did it. And Chris was actually one of the best, you know, students of data logging. He'd mm. sit there and right, you concentrate on this, 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 and this, and he'd go away and do it. Except at Sandown that day, because I had all this data from all these different cars up and down the field, small cars, fast cars, turbocharged cars, dirty great Falcon. Old JB, he was 50 metres deeper over Rothman's Rise than everyone, mm. and including the guys who were on pole. It was ridiculous. It was like, hey, mate, in the Subaru, what <laughs> on earth are you doing? You've got this dirty great Falcon going 50 metres deeper over Rothman Rise. Yeah, that's John Balfour, isn't it? So, uh, yep, P4 for mine. Great. Great addition. P- P4 for me, Mark Weber. Uh, I'm a pretty simple man to please in sport. Show me someone or a team that's willing to have a crack 100% of the time and I'll watch and support them knowing that every time they race or play, I'll get value for money. That's all I want to see in sport. I'm pretty happy in regards to that. So you can imagine my frustration following Richmond for <laughs> 20 years after 1980. Uh, add to that the fact that the person giving 100% every time is an Aussie and then you've really got me and Mark Weber was that man. I had to follow Weber because he was an Australian when I was doing On the Grid on SEN and covering Formula One supercars there. And, and people wanted to know how he was going all the time, but I didn't have to like him, but how could you not? From the minute he put that Minardi on the podium, oh, sorry, fifth, in the 2002 Australian Grand Prix. <laughs> uh, <laughs> a car that had no right to be in the top 10 cars in that field, and the rest of the season actually showed you exactly that that was correct. Uh, Weber, you just knew that Weber had something special. Uh, while he never really reached the heights that maybe we all expected from him, he finished third in the championship three times, but never really got the wins on the board to go the next step. It was a great bloke to deal with in the media and always gave you something to talk about. For me, Mark Weber, number four. Not bad for number two. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Number four for number two. I was so thrilled when he won the world championship with Porsche in yeah. WEC because it was yeah. the world it was the world title he should have won in Formula One, but at least he got an FIA world championship. Oh, I love that. Well said, Shebeki. Okay, number three for me. Yep. Anyone who walks onto a plane with a trophy and in a race suit, <laughs> it's, it, it's unquestionable. Johnny Goss, John Goss, one of the most flamboyant and unique characters this sport has ever seen. Um, a real showman. He, uh, a fantastic privateer. I'm with you, Mark. I've got a couple of privateers coming to the, to the surface here. He was technically brilliant. He built his own sports car in Tasmania and came and raced it successfully in Australia. He tied up with uh, Max McLeod and <laughs> McLeod Ford. Was the crowd favourite at Amaru and on Oran Park. The shots of him in the old Phase 3 and then in later days the Super the XA and XB. Sideways, tyre smoking. And, and the crowds loved it. Didn't do a lot of ATCC rounds. Concentrated as Larry did in that uh, later on in the year on, on Bathurst. Should have won in 73 in the yellow XA with KB. Got taken out by a, a nuff nuff in, uh, in the cutting. Uh, it came back in 74 and won it. Uh, you know, some people say, oh, the, the HDT fell over, but, you know, he, they didn't make it. They were 60-odd laps shy. And Gossi and KB took one of the most memorable victories there ever. Sticking to touring cars, uh, you know, worked hard on privateer deals. A lot of them were, were sort of half-cocked, but then got the Jaguar going and was rewarded with a drive with TWR with Tom Alkinshaw and won again in 85 with Armin Hart. And, and after all, in between all that, purchased Frank Maddich's A53s and set about not only winning the first race he ran it in at Sandown in the, in the then Rothman series, he then went on and won the Australian Grand Prix. So I've got to tell you, there is never going to be another driver that's going to win Bathurst in the Australian Grand Prix, unless mm. it's Daniel Ricciardo. Yeah, correct. Yeah. Um, so he really, you know, did some quite extraordinary things, but... Um, uh, he was he was always uh, the, the pin-up boy for Shell. He was a pin-up boy for Ronga Wheels. There's always the birds around him. He had the scarf around the neck, the bell hat. And just to finish off very quickly, I did a, a terrific thing with him. Um, we actually recreated his 1974 Bathurst winning bell helmet in a new one and presented it to him at Sandown at a historic meeting some years ago. A great bloke, a really great bloke. But however, if you're going to go and have a chat with him, make sure you've got a few hours. <laughs> I, I, love, I love that. And you know you're in the motorsport vernacular when if you are a racing car driver in this day and age and you even <laughs> remotely show something showy, you will be get called, hey, Gossie, settle down. 
Yep. They're all down. That gets around the Super Cup paddock. Uh, anyone, a lot. Anyone at a race meeting who's wearing a race suit on Thursday? Correct. Gossy. Hey, Gossy. Yeah. Right. And I, I think that is the epitome of respect yep. to show one of the legends. I love that. Very nicely done. Um, my number three, and I, I, it was hard work to split all these, and, and I'm, I'm sure it was for everybody. Um, but my number three is Larry Perkins. And one of the great moments of my uh, commentary career, and I use that term in inverted commas, is at the Australian Grand Prix a couple of years ago, I was calling with my mate Jack Perkins, and we were doing a Group A and C Heritage Touring Car Race that went for 30 minutes. And I'll, I'll be honest and tell you that while we were happy to be making live TV for our friends at Channel 10, we weren't overly thrilled about having to do that race. Um, so Jack said, hey, LP's here uh, up in the corporate suite. Why don't we see if he wants to come down? So I, the next 30 minutes of my life were calling a field of 35 old, genuine Group A and Group C cars from the Australian Touring Car Championship at the Australian Grand Prix on network television with Jack Perkins and with Larry Perkins. And it's one of the great moments. And we spent half an hour not talking about what was on screen because it was LP. <laughs> oh yeah. I drove that car back in 89 and it had a problem with some understeer here, but we fixed it with this and rah, rah, rah. And it was just like, it was as good as anything I've ever heard. Um, Larry, as a kid, I grew up in a Holden household. I was a hardcore Holden fan and LP was just the epitome of great Holden drivers. Obviously, the wins with Brock were won, but the Castrol days for mine um, and 95 Bathurst was the pinnacle as a Holden fan as a kid with 0-5 out of the race, with 0-1-5 out of the race and with the Winfield car out of contention as well, with Jim Richards behind the wheel and Scafie, LP was it for the Holden fans in a race that was being dominated by the Blue Oval and the way he plays through, especially Alan Jones on Conrod Strait with the great the great tones of Mike Raymond calling it. Um, that was outstanding, but I love the fact that he engineered everything himself. I love the fact that he was the privateer battling with the works teams, even when he was the works team for a while there in a way. Um, one of the great characters of the sport. It, it's an absolute privilege for mine to have actually associated with this guy as it is for so many of these people. So um yeah, a guy I've got just infinite respect for his career and and now as a human being as well. Just a legend, Larry Perkins, number three. Don't you ever tell me that watching Eric Clapton at Abu Dhabi behind Ferrari World on a Grand Prix weekend is name dropping. <laughs> well, it is, Shebex. And for those of you that don't know what we're talking about, you weren't listening to us before we pushed record. <laughs> That's <laughs> a callback to something that never happened on the podcast. It never actually happened on the podcast. But before the show, Shebex just rattled off Abu Dhabi, Ferrari and Eric Clapton in the same sentence. And we gave him some grief for that. I still think it's more impressive than Larry Perkins' Australian uh, Grand Prix in Channel not, 10. But I'm anyway. not 100% sure. Not 100% sure. <laughs> right. uh, mine, number three, if I may, Mark. Yeah, go for it. Mine's going to be fairly – it's a fairly simple number three. And the only reason is is because I thought that he was probably going to be covered by others as well. And I will bow to you guys in regards to knowing this guy's career better than I did because you've – especially you, Dale, because you've been involved in the business for so long. But – Peter Brock's at my number three. The only thing that Peter Brock and I have in common is that he was born at the Etworth Hospital in Richmond and I had my knee replacement operation there earlier this year. <laughs> some, some 76 years later to the day that the great man was brought into the world. The Isn't day. that amazing? To the day. Are he you had, serious? I had my knee operation in the Etworth Hospital to can the you, day that he was born. The can 20, you provide a receipt as proof of that, please? The 26th of February <laughs> this year was the same day. It's fantastic. <laughs> And is, uh, is there anything you can't or haven't said about Brocky? I, I think the true indication of a champion in any sport is that people pay to see a person from an opposing side, and I'm certain that there were many Ford fans who hated Peter Brock due to his holding car, but absolutely loved Peter Brock because they knew that every time he stepped into the car or on a track, he'd give 100% to the cause of making that race something special. And that was Peter Brock every time he drove on any track. So Peter Brock for me, number three. And yeah. by all reports, he had some very stout knee joints. So uh, <laughs> good on him. Uh, my number three, and he, he deserves to feel robbed by being my number three, is my childhood hero, Dick Johnson. Oh, uh, wow. Yeah. Number three. Wow. Yeah, he's been robbed. Oh. Absolutely robbed. Yeah. Yep. 
This is what happens when you give me 24 hours to dwell on these things. Yeah. It's, uh, it's no good. Anyway, I mean, growing up, my favorite color was green. And then about 1987, it became red. Um, yeah, photos of me in a Dickie Johnson Mustang hand-painted T-shirt standing in front of his tent when I went to Lakeside in the middle of the 80s. You know, paths are crossed over the years and you, you, know, you get to meet him and stuff. And it, it's awesome. Mm. 2003 at Queensland Raceway, they had the Group C revival, and he went out there that morning in the old hardtop, the old Brian Burt hardtop. Anyway, for the main John French uh, race that they had on for the Group C cars, he came up in the commentary, and I was just commentating this whole thing by myself, and here's Dick Johnson, and I ran the tape recorder on it, and actually turned into a couple of stories on the race talk last year. Uh, if you go, in, go into the search bar on the website and put in putting your foot in a bowl of custard, yeah. We'll come to uh, <laughs> one of the stories. But uh, I remember driving home from QR that day and going, I just spent half an hour in a commentary booth with Dick Johnson. It was like you with Larry at the Grand Prix. Mm. It's just mm -hmm. such a cool thing. And Dick's a legend. What more can you say? Sure is. Mm. Hold on. Well, up to number twos. Number twos. Anyone who gets a bar named after them is a legend. At Williams headquarters... The Ellen Jones Bar is pride of place in the conference centre behind the famous FWO7. And uh, Claire Williams at the uh, Motorsport Australia function a couple of years ago said that there was no other name that we could have put other than Ellen Jones Bar behind the bar. AJ described himself as a kid as an obnoxious little bastard and a big-headed little prick. Now, there's probably quite a few people that still hold that point of view. I don't, actually. Um I actually think he was one of one of the great Formula One drivers of that year, and 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 you know uh, the guys, particularly Richard and Adelaide, that eighties and nineties era Formula One is just one of the best ever. Uh, he he drove a, a, an all aspirated Williams, which was a brilliant bit of kit by Patrick Head against Turbo Renaults and things in eighty one, and, and killed them. Um, it's it summed up really nicely by by Frank Williams, who said, and I'll quote this: "AJ was a man's man." And he was great fun to be with. He never needed propping up mentally because he was a very determined and bullish character. He didn't need any babysitting or hand-holding, and that's the way it should be. It shouldn't be necessary for me to ask a driver if he's happy or if he needs his, nap, his underwear changed. And that really sums up OJ. He, Patrick Head and, and Frank Williams were the dream team of that era. They picked a guy that they knew was a gutsy driver. He took them to their first world championship. He should have won in 81 had Carlos played the game and a couple of things um, that I got involved with him in Australia on his return. He did some great work for my company uh, then. Uh, he was not the person a lot of people said he would do as much as he could. He did free pit tours. He attended shops. He did all sorts of things. And even as late as the, uh, the um, what was the series, the, uh, not the, uh, A1. the A1 series, uh, he tipped us in to try and get the quote on supplying gear to that organiser. So AJ's a, a great friend. Uh, I thought he was just fantastic. And, he, and many people say they watched his 1980 championship live on TV, which they didn't because it wasn't on. He was responsible for actually getting it on in 1981, where it was live. So mm. it actually started yeah. live in 81. Okay. Um, and, uh, but he's, he is one of the great champions of Australia. He's, uh, you know, he's a gruff character. Uh, he doesn't handle fools uh, particularly well. I don't know how he handled me. Uh, but uh, just one of the great races. A race is racer and, and the sort of guy that, is, that, that I think Australians love seeing win races. Oh, yeah. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I've interacted with AJ and it, it was great. Yeah. Really, really cool. Awesome. Yeah. Yep. Love it. Number two for me, uh, and you've already mentioned him, Richard, in yours, but it was Nigel Mansell for me. Uh, when I turned 18 in 85, my first car was a Honda. So it was only right that I followed the Williams Honda team at the time and instantly took a liking to Nigel Mansell, even to the extent that when I appeared on episode 10 of Press Your Luck with Ian Turpy, it was mentioned that I was a Formula One what? fan. And he... Hang on, hang on. Oh, whoa. Whoa. And, and, I have video, and I have video proof of this. Let's just step back a little bit. <laughs> Press Your Luck with Terps. Yeah, Ian Turpy, you remember the little... Uh, Monster was going around and no, whammy. It was a little whammy and used to it's push it well before. If you had the listeners on RS1, Tony, <laughs> no, unless they had it, they, I know they had it in America. It was definitely an American show. Uh, wow. Anyway, it was mentioned that I was a Formula One fan and he had to. I followed and I professed my admiration for Mansell and the Williams Honda team on national television at that point. That win, that first win for Mansell in '85 at Brands Hatch was an amazing driver. Made me realise that I had made the right choice in following the Brit. 
Should have had at least two championships, I reckon, to his name, at least. But who will ever forget that day in 86, Adelaide, the first Grand Prix that I ever went to live. I drove over there with two mates as a 19-year-old and saw the tyre blow, condemning Mansell to finishing outside the top four and handing the championship to Elaine Prost. I followed him to Ferrari, followed him back to Williams and was over the moon when he finally won that first only championship in 92. Eight wins and a second in that 92 season from the first 10 races was a dominance that I'd never really witnessed in motorsport before. So Nigel Mansell, my number two. Awesome. Yep. Great. Uh, we've only had two double ups so far and we're right. We're right into the final round here. So my number two on my list um, and it's kind of a technicality, but he raced bikes and he raced bikes against John Surtees. So I feel like that counts. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's Murray Walker. Ah, Has to be. Has awesome. to be. Well done. Um, I was wondering how you're going to get him in. Complete and utter influence on my career and, and wanting to do what I do was growing up and like the stories we told of Nige, um, uh, getting up at all hours in the morning to watch a Grand Prix and you'd have the TV on the quietest possible level you could. So you didn't wake the rest of the house up and you'd be straining to hear, but you'd hear Murray, no problems. Um, and then of course, when he'd come out for the Australian Grand Prix and he'd work for Channel 9 directly in the early days, um, it was just great. He and James Hunt and then AJ down the road would jump in as well. And, he called touring cars with Daryl Eastlake. And that was a hell of a combination and just all sorts of stuff. But just the number one most influential motor racing commentator of all time. There's not much more I can say about that. It was, it was very, very sad when he passed away earlier this year, but hugely impactful on my motor racing journey, I suppose. Um, so that's why he's number two. And it took a fair old Titan of the sport to knock him off my number one spot. I can give you the hot tip, but Murray Walker, number two for me. And one, of the best, was... one of the best books I've ever read. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, and I won't digress too long, but I, I met Murray in Adelaide in 2004 and we we're working on community TV. He was driving a Mercedes in the classic Adelaide rally. Um, we were working on community TV and we went, they stopped not, not far from where I live at Peter Lehman Wines was the lunch stop. And we went there with the sole objective of getting Murray on camera for our little TV show, talk TV and um, we did. He was very generous with his time. And then he signed a copy of his autobiography for me with Dear Richard, thank you for the interview at Peter Lehman's Murray Walker. And uh, that's one of my most treasured possessions. So, yeah, lovely, brilliant. Very good. Was, of course, it was Murray Walker who called that tire explosion for Nigel Mansell. It sure was. Look Hopefully. at this. It's spectacular. Oh, it's Mansell. It's Mansell. Uh, and it was the first time, really, that I reckon Murray Walker was lost for words. Mm. Because he knew that Mansell had thrown away the championship. Well, not thrown away, but had lost the championship yep. at that point and really did not know what to say because Murray and Nigel were pretty good mates as well, I believe. Yeah. We're, we're almost at the number one. Well, Walker's final number two. Number two. I doubt you guys have got this one, but um, rallying Simon Evans. Yes. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Like, I haven't got him, but what a great choice. What a great just great bloke. What a top bloke. Can drive, my goodness! Mm. Can he drive? Holy moly! Um, I, I first came on my radar back in two thousand three. Chris Nixon, legendary Chris Nixon, uh, shoehorned me in to do the PR for the Rally of Queensland, and we spent a day touring him around to all the media outlets, and we had a launch and all sorts of stuff. And just spending a day with him was like, wow, this guy is legit. Uh, yeah, man crush Mark over here. <laughs> uh, I remember in the rally itself. One of the service breaks, he just won the stage uh, leading up to the service. So I went down there with my recorder to get a grab for the radio. And Simon, uh, congratulations, well done. Fast in the stage by eight seconds. Must be going well. He's going, no, oh, no, it's no good. Uh, total brake failure. <laughs> what? Yeah, no, the car just wouldn't slow down. So that's why we we're the fastest. <laughs> but just that. That's him, isn't it? You know, and yeah. it probably cost him championships because he was he'd overdrive it and go too hard and be an absolute madman. And I think one of the other rallies up there at uh, Rally Queensland came in. And it's like, uh, you might want to go and check out there, but pretty sure I ran over one of your photographers. <laughs> you know, what do you mean? What do you mean? It's like he was in a ditch, and I just went over the top of him. And uh, of course, there's our friend Dirk. 
Yeah. <laughs> it was lying in a ditch and yeah, anyway. Uh, Dirk's still alive and well. So um and, and actually I remember one time we were commentating from the middle of the forest at a regroup between two stages, and um there was a dead set tree through his intercooler, and I'm like, uh Simon, there is a tree through your intercooler and it all made the coverage. It was very funny, but they managed to drive it back to the stage. How a tree got absolutely wedged. It, no, it was amazing. One time I was emceeing the, the celebratory dinner up there and I was pretty quick to the bar. I actually beat Simon to the bar. Oh, like, that, that, something. that was a bit of commitment there. <laughs> it's like, Simon, what do you want, mate? My shout. Oh, two VBs, thanks. Yeah. And he was double parked on VBs for the rest of the evening. <laughs> and if that doesn't say at all, uh, I don't know what else to say. But my, Simon Evans, number two. Yeah, that that's yeah. great. My Shebex, my Simon Evans story, I did the 2006 rally of Melbourne. I was part of the commentary team there. And um, it was the final round of the ARC. And, and the round, he ultimately wrapped up his first of what, four, I think it was four, wasn't it? Yeah, four Australian Rally Championship titles for Toyota. And... Um, he was pretty happy with that because he'd been battling for a while and he'd finally mm. been given this opportunity in the factory team alongside Neil Bates and all this good stuff. Um, and the presentation, you know, as they all do, went long. And uh, Simon had started celebrating very early. So by the, time, by the time it, it came to present the large ARC trophy, Simon had had a, a beverage or two. Um, but still, he gave a remarkable speech. It was really, really good funny, entertaining, touched on all the high points of his career, the lowlights, thanked every single person that had assisted his career to that point of winning the Australian Rally Championship. Every single person, except his co-driver, Sue, who was at the time his wife. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he sat down, he thanked everybody. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. I'm going to go and get smashed and sat down and there was silence in the room because everybody except he had realized (laughs) that he had forgotten to thank Sue. And it very quickly dawned on him that he had forgotten to thank his lovely wife who was in the co-driver's seat at the time. Uh, So he got back up and uh, made amends for that. But um, very, very funny. That's a great number two. So I reckon reckon that 2006 year was a year that I went for a media drive with Simon around the deep or tally, deep patoli vineyard. And there was one point, in my, it's probably the only time in my life that I've actually thought that I was going to die. <laughs> and it was heading around a bend. And I didn't realize that rally car drivers actually line themselves up at points and then turn themselves around that point effectively. So he had lined up this tree and he's going 210 at this tree. And all I can see is this tree getting closer and closer. And I'm thinking he's not moving. He's not flinching. He's not doing anything. He's not breaking. That's it. I'm dead. And then all of a sudden, we just take this tree, take the bend, and off we go. And it was just amazing, the control that he had of that Toyota. It was uh, fantastic to watch. Uh, it must be Dale's turn for number one. Number one, uh, the greatest showman ever in Australian motorsport, non BG for mine. Uh, mm. Probably surprising from my camp. Um, I was, uh, it's interesting when you talk about uh, your heroes very early on. I was very lucky with a schoolmate of mine who was, his dad was the Shell advertising manager. And my first time ever to a motor racing event was at Calder. And uh, not only was it the first motor racing event, but Beachy was there in the Nova. And then Graham Moore, who was the engineer at the time, stuck me and, and my mate Simon in the passenger seat and drove us around the pits in it. So my first adventure at a motorsport race was pretty cool. Um, I thought that you know, what Beachy did in that era was just amazing. Calder was like the crowds used to carry on like an AFL match. You've never heard anything like it. They were It was a shithole of a place to go to. The race was intense. It was great. And the crowd used to get right into it. His his era with Pete Gagan is part of Australian folklore. No matter where they were, whether it was Lakeside or Warwick Farm or Calder, they raced everywhere together and rarely touched uh, a panel with each other. They were brilliant. They were great mates and they were great races. But what Beachy did is brought, as we we did an article last year, which Norm was very kind to give us some time with about the cars, he just brought the most iconic cars to the sport. The first Mustang ever to win a championship anywhere in the world. The Chevy Nova. No one had run a Chevy Nova in, in circuit racing. The first improved production Monaro. And then mighty uh, GTSH, GTS 350HT Monaro. His cars were just fantastic, as was he. It was all about sideways, tyre smoke. It was not about setup. It was not about um, 
but his engineering uh, finesse was actually very good. And, and Lou Mellina, who we spoke to as well, said that he he, he really designed and, and basically oversaw the build of that uh, fabulous yellow Monaro. So he was just a great showman. It's a, you know, we just don't have some of these characters anymore in the sport. He, he was all about the show. He was about entertainment. He was a ripper driver and a great bloke and, a, and a, you know, really a great ambassador for Australian touring car racing or Australian car racing. Norm Beachy, my number one. Great. Love it. Uh, my number one's Peter Brock. It was always going to be Peter Brock. Um, he was my hero growing up as a kid. He was my favorite sports person in the world. Um, legend of the sport. But the the thing I loved most about Brock was, and you learn later in life, was that he was just a flawed, ordinary human being like the rest of us, which I think made it even better that he could go and achieve all those things he did. Um, the The... The, one of the things that got me about Brock was in 2004, um, no, 03, sorry, we were doing radio and we did a motorsport show on a Friday night and we thought it was the week after the Bathurst 24-hour that he won and it was the weekend of the final round of supercars at Eastern Creek. And we thought, let's try, just throw a speculator and see if we can get Brock on the show with no expectation that we would. We're a little community radio station in the Barossa Valley, um, but why not? So we, um, I reckon, it, I don't think we went to Pembo. I think it was Ron Hamilton maybe was PR at working for Pembo at the time. But anyway, um, I don't think it was the Gerald era yet. I'm not sure. Um, anyway, beside the point. Um, so hi, we do this radio show, maybe oversold it a little bit. Um, do you think we can get Brock? And um, he came back with, yeah, yeah, no worries. Here's his phone number. Ring him at this time. So, and I will say right now that the mobile phone number we were given ended in 05, which I thought was <laughs> tremendous. Um, so we rang Brock and he was driving out of Sydney Motorsport Park, Eastern Creek, to go back to his hotel in Sydney to a sponsor function. And um, he was like, oh, yeah. Good to, good to speak to you. Um, just to let you know, I'm driving back to Sydney. The phone might drop out. I've got to go through some tunnels. The phone may drop out. Just so you aware. Like, no worries. Brock will drive. Peter will drive straight in. Had this amazing chat. Got him to say on record that he thought that winning the 24 hours was his, yes was his tenth Bathurst victory, um, which was tremendous. Um, wonderful chat. Anyway, the line went crackly. Disappeared. We got about 18 minutes out of him. And uh, we were like, oh, well, you know, it's going to happen. We got, well, we got almost 20 minutes with the king. Like, this is great. Let's go to a song. We'll be right back with the rest of the program. Anyway, two minutes later, the phone rings in the studio. And we are triple BFM, Richard speaking. Oh, it's Brocky here. I was really enjoying that. So I've got, a, got about 20 minutes to go in the car. If you want to keep going, I'm happy. So I think we we're paying <laughs> wow. you too. Got killed very, very quickly. And we did another 15 minutes with, with Peter Brock. So one of just an amazing interaction for one of my childhood motorsport and sporting hero. I didn't have football heroes, had some cricketing heroes, but motorsport was it. And Brock was it there. So uh, Peter Brock's my number one. Brilliant. Fabulous. Uh, you want to go on me? I'll have a chop. Right. Uh, back 94, 95, my favorite IndyCar driver was Jacques Villeneuve. Uh, but when he buggered off to Formula One, he got replaced by Greg Moore. Mm. And didn't take long for him to become my favourite. Uh, third race up in 96 uh, on the Gold Coast, he came third. So I was like, right, he's my man. And I, I think I got pretty well paid back for that uh, following him. Man, he could drive. Man, he was a cool dude. Yeah, And you look at his wins. They were just so awesome. And there was such an awesome era for IndyCar as well. You know, 97 Milwaukee's first win, holding off Michael Andretti right to the finish, you know, become the youngest winner in IndyCar history. Next race up at Detroit, that awesome finish when Pac West ran out of fuel in the last lap and and uh, Danny Sullivan and commentary just about falling out of the commentary box. Um, the next year at Brazil, uh, him and Zanardi, there was a great battle at the finish and Arne Meyer got in the way and, and Greg used him as a pick and then went around the outside of Zanardi at turn one. Uh, and then later that year at Michigan, you know, it was the Hanford device era and that mm. ridiculous racing at Michigan. And with a couple laps to go, he was fourth past Jimmy Vassar on the last lap and took the win. And, and then he also had a win at um, 
Homestead as well to start the 99 series. But then, uh, obviously, um, you know, towards the end of 99, it became apparent that he was going off to Team Penske where he would have won everything. Like, he would have been set for life. He would have won Indy 500, the championship, all that sort of stuff. Uh, I remember 98 in the Gold Coast. I was sitting in the grandstand, and I was a rookie grandstand operator, and I had a ticket in the front row, which was just ridiculous. So I went and parked myself up in the very back row in the, in the um, aisle. And next to me were two people from California, uh, Bob and Rhonda Sam. I'm not sure if they're listening today, but uh, hello to Bob and Rhonda if you're listening from California. But we uh, did, a deal, did a deal with them. It's like, yeah, I'll send you some T-shirts and you send me a Greg Moore T-shirt when you go back to Long Beach the next year. And sure enough, they sent me a T-shirt and it arrived the day that he died oh. in the crash in Fontana. Wow. It was oh, just wow. like, that's something that I'll Dude. never, you know, it was ridiculous. But, you know, that's one of my most prized possessions for sure. And, and his book is such a beautiful book. That's my favourite book in the world that uh, they've got um, ha- ha- him as a memory. It's just amazing. Mm. So for mine... Number one, Greg Moore. What a legend. Great. Well done, mate. Nice. Great driver. Great driver. Uh, Final number one for the show, and it's Michael Schumacher for me. When Mansell retired from Formula One in 92, it was time for me to find someone new to follow, and I jumped on the Schumacher bandwagon. It was his win at Spa in 92 that really brought the Schumacher name to my attention, and the fact that he was the best of the rest that year, finishing third in the championship between behind Mantle and I nearly said Patrizzi. It's not Patrizzi. <laughs> it's got the name in my head. Ricardo Patrizzi, not Michael Patrizzi, uh, in the championship meant that since I'd been following the best, I was now prepared to continue on to the next best thing. His record speaks for itself, and most of his records still stand and have until the last couple of years as Nigel Mantle starts to knock them off. One uh, Nigel Mantle, Lewis Hamilton. How good am I going? Uh, Lewis Hamilton knocks them off one by one. Seven championships in 11 years, an amazing domination, and one that will never be forgotten. And to be there in my first year of covering Formula One for SEN in 2004, when he beat teammate Rubens Barrichello, and then to be in the press conference and that year in the front of the greatest driver, makes him the greatest driver I've ever seen. It was a very memorable moment. And a story just about that Grand Prix, Rolf Schumacher, who, of course, was driving in that Grand Prix as well. After, I think it was after practice on the Friday, I went up to Rolf to see if he could record, Hi, I'm Rolf Schumacher, and you're listening to On The Grid. His response was, sorry, I have contractual obligations to a radio station in Germany. Can't do it. There you go. Did you get it from anyone? Like, can we use Yeah, I've got a couple. Wheel them out. Where are they? No, I don't have them now. I think they're back at SEN, (laughs) and I'm not allowed in the studio, so. Uh, I'll see what I can find. Yeah, good. Yeah, well, that, that was, was excellent. Nicely done, boys. Well done. Not many double ups there. We've done well. No, no I think uh, Peter Brock got mentioned twice. AJ? Nigel, Nigel Mantle got mentioned twice, and Alan Jones got mentioned twice, and that's it. Yeah. So that's that's pretty good. That's so there's 17 originals out of the 20 we listed. So that's that's very very good. Uh, don't forget, folks. Um, we want to know your motor racing heroes. So jump on to the racetalk.com, hit our social media up at the racetalk and let us know your top five motor racing heroes. And um, we probably won't mention it on the podcast, but we'd love to read your comments anyway. So (laughs) let us know. And if you would like to suggest another top five for us to ramble on about 45 minutes, we'd be happy to take your suggestions. Um, They're bloody hard work. So give us, give us a week's notice if you don't mind. (laughs) They're good. No, like that. Very nicely done. So just to recap, mine was Brock, Norm Beachy for Dale, Greg Moore for Mark, and Michael Schumacher for Tony. That's a pretty good spread of mm. motor racing talent from five decades, six decades even. That's yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Great. Great work, guys. Fantastic uh, having that one. And thank you for joining us again right here on The Grid. We look forward to catching you again next week. <laughs>